do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Something we don't talk about enough, the deep racism in agriculture and food, and honestly, also in the regenerative agriculture movement. We stand on the shoulders of giants in the indigenous farming and land management space, but choose not to mention them. All practices we currently call regenerative are not new, but have been around for a long, long time. And we choose broadly not to acknowledge that and look away when it comes to thorny topics like land ownership, access to land, access to finance, access to conferences and access to podcasts like this. So let's get real and uncomfortable and discuss things like the real origin story of the Green Revolution, the black farming movement in the US and the deep roots of colonization in the agriculture space and what we can and have to learn from that. This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities, and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, where and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. Or find the link below. Today we have a very special episode where we have uh, one of our first guests back on the podcast. She was a uh, guest in the episode number 18, so that's almost four and a half years ago. Uh, Liz Carlisle has written a new book, has, actually has written a lot in the meantime, but we had her last time for The Lento Underground, which I would anybody um, re- strongly suggest to read it, but she's back now with Healing Grounds, which has been an amazing book. I really, really enjoyed it, and I'm very happy to have Liz back on the podcast. So Welcome. I'm delighted to be here and to to reconnect, touch base. Yeah, a lot has happened in in this space. We're going to get to that as well because you've been observing this space, uh, this space, quote unquote, let's say the regeneration space for for a while as well. Um, but first, let's start. What triggered you to to write uh, another book? I mean, it's always a massive undertaking. I, I think I've never done it. I've just seen it from outside and far away. Uh, instead of articles or essays or papers. I mean, you, you, you didn't have to write this book. What made this book uh, a book that had to be written and had to be written by you? Yeah, that last question's a tough one. I don't know if I have the answer to that, you know, whether I'm the right author for this book, but I, I did feel a real sense of urgency about this book. And I think it's, um, you know, it's been a long journey for me um, trying to understand this idea of regeneration and regenerative agriculture and what is really required of us as people to regenerate, um, you know, soil carbon, which is sort of where I started um, this investigation 12 years ago as a researcher and writer. Um, 
But I've just continually tried to understand the deeper layers of regeneration. And in many cases, the, the root causes of why we have an extractive agriculture in the first place that would take carbon out of soil um, and put it into the atmosphere. Why on earth um, did society get to a place where that somehow made sense? And so this book digs further back in history um, to understand this as a process that got started several hundred years ago. Um, and I think also, you know, for me, has a sense of urgency around the, the social change that's necessary for us to solve the climate problems in agriculture, which I now understand to be really, really deeply wedded to questions of social justice. Yeah, it's been fascinating. I, I tumbled into the the regen movement as well about 12 years ago on, on the carbon side and, and yeah, unpeeling the onion further and further, you, you get to... Um, why yeah, why would it make sense to to unleash all that carbon which has such a crucial role in the soil and and, and we know now how to and we know we have known be before how to restore that and why don't we um, or haven't we done at scale yet uh, and and I think there there's yeah it's not about the techniques the techniques are there and and we we know how to do it let's say we we know the scientific research and etc cetera, etc cetera, but the question is why why haven't we and you go back also to a very interesting, of course, I will put links to the book below. But one of the things that really struck me, apart from really reading about the history of the regeneration movement or the history of, of regen, which goes way further than uh, we, we normally hear, let's say. Um, but one moment was very, very fascinating um, on the Green Revolution, where that started. We've all known, like in Mexico, in that research institute, they, they started pushing on, on certain uh, inputs, etc. But that's not the full story. Like the story started actually before that and had a very different intent. And the Rockefeller funding, Rockefeller Foundation funding that started the whole thing had a very different intent when they started. So shall we unpack that a bit and then go to, to the rest of the book? Yeah, I, I, I was fascinated by this story as well, because, you know, when I first started getting into regenerative agriculture or, or organic agriculture, which is what I was first introduced to, I pretty early on heard about this kind of boogeyman, <laughs> the bad guy on the other side, um, Norman Borlaug, um, who had won the Nobel Peace Prize in the early 70s for his work on hybrid grain. Um, and I learned that Borlaug's approach was, um, you know, very, very high yielding monocultures of grain using high inputs of fossil fuel based chemicals, meaning fertilizers, herbicides, other kinds of pesticides, as well as intensive irrigation. Um, and so, you know, for me, just getting into the organic farming movement and agroecology, I was interested in an approach that was much lower input, accessible to people in all kinds of environments, rather than this really high input. Um, you know, the point is just to get high yielding corn or wheat under ideal conditions. So I had learned about Norman Borlaug, you know, I knew he was affiliated with the Rockefeller program, and this thing was called the Green Revolution, and it had undermined the livelihoods of smallholder farmers around the world who couldn't access these expensive fertilizers and herbicides and irrigation. And so the, you know, the market that they had counted on for what they produced fell out, you know, from under them as these high input producers kind of captured the global export market. 
So I had I had heard about that story, and I understood this kind of struggle between two visions of agriculture, one that was very, um, you know, high input and sort of technology intensive and more accessible to people with more resources, and one that was sort of more democratic and low input and ecological, and in my view, consistent with what we need to do on, on climate and other ecological challenges. But I think the story I hadn't learned was that even within the Rockefeller Foundation, um, prior to Borlaug's ascent um, to power, there was a debate about um, what it meant to, um, you know, pursue technical assistance for agricultural producers in Mexico in the early 20th century. Not everybody believed in a high input approach. And even when Borlaug did ultimately win the day on pursuing you know, a lot of chemicals rather than compost and cover crops and things we now talk about in regenerative agriculture circles, there was this massive resistance movement in Mexico led by indigenous people um, that not only has shaped Mexican history and Latin American history, but actually led to the creation of the field of agroecology, my research field, and has also shaped um, history throughout the Americas and throughout the world. Um, because it, it was those um, smallholders and indigenous people in Mexico fighting Borlaug's vision who articulated the alternative um, that that now I think has so much relevance within within climate discussions um, and discussions of a more ecological agriculture, which which for them also was about you know having power over their own livelihoods and communities. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to see. Of course, the when it was, but also. I think the original funding uh, even was focused on that work to understand the agroecology or whatever it was called at that moment. And of course, the terminology is, is different, but the original funding or the original project was to understand that better and to, to research that. And then somehow it became, it, it took a right or a left turn, whatever we want to call it. It took a different turn um, by uh, certain influences to go on the high input, uh, high output. But let's not forget many of the, these um, quote-unquote peasant farmers had an incredible high output uh, with a very, very low input. Like the whole feeding the world discussion, let's not go, go there because that that's irrelevant and, and uh, in many cases nonsense. Uh, they were out-competing everything, but they were just simply pushed out of the way um, because of the input side, because of the, the hybrids, because of... Much. But the original idea of the Rockefeller project seemed to be actually quite focused on agroecology and understanding why these peasant and smallholder farmers were so incredibly productive over time without losing fertility, without um, a lot of inputs. And then somehow they, they took another turn and, and got into the, on, on the high input train. What can we learn there? What can we learn? Because it was a very small funding and was a very small amount actually at the time and, and probably a bit more, and, but now even less, that sort of changed the course of history. What, what can we learn there from very good intentions, I think, if we look at the original plan, was very agroecology focused, the, the rotations, the composting, let's learn from some other farmers. And then 10 years later, or I don't know the time frame, whoop, it went all the way to the other side and became this extreme colonization force that, that has cost us a lot. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. 
Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I think that's absolutely the right question because I do think this tale of the Rockefeller Foundation's Mexican agricultural program is a cautionary tale for funders and investors um, in regenerative agriculture, because you're absolutely right. At, at the beginning, um, when this program was first getting started um, in the 30s, um, if you sort of think about the cast of characters involved, it wasn't too different from, you know, I'm in the United States, you know, sort of like Bernie Sanders type of supporters, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren type of supporters. It was a group of progressives who were connected within philanthropic circles and who were also pretty connected to the, the New Deal project and the idea of big social programs that were public um, in the 30s coming out of the Depression, who um, by and large, really admired the Mexican Revolution and the land reform that happened in Mexico as Mexico transitioned from these big haciendas, these big estates where people were essentially all but enslaved. Um, and these large tracts of land were owned by just, you know, a few people in the country to, uh, you know, this land reform where a lot of people got their own parcel to farm. And there was this more kind of, um, you know, food sovereignty type of vision for how agriculture and the economy would proceed in Mexico. The Mexican agricultural program of the Rockefeller Foundation was originally full of people who believed in that vision. Um, they saw it as sort of consistent with Jeffersonian American democracy, this idea that a nation of small farmers is, um, you know, the basis of a, of a democratic nation. And this is a good basis for the economy to have um, people having access to their own ability to produce food for their own communities. And um, so that's where the Mexican agricultural program started, is how do we support these small farmers who've just gotten on their ejidos, these small tracts of land that people got as part of the land reform, with technical assistance that's appropriate to them. So knowing that these aren't people with the money to buy commercial fertilizers, a lot of these people don't have access to irrigation, they might be at high elevation. Um, and so the original, you know, pursuit was how do we support corn farmers, because that was the subsistence crop. And how do we support them with things like, yeah, composting, cover crops, <laughs> all these things that we think of as regenerative or organic or sustainable. And what changed, um, you know, Norman Borlaug, when he first got there, he he was kind of by all accounts a little bit arrogant. Um, he was he was from Iowa. He'd seen the beginnings of industrial high yielding agriculture. And he really did believe that this uh, sort of technologically driven approach to higher yields was a, was a better way. And he had a lot of disdain for small farmers and for sort of biological strategies rather than chemical ones. But when he first showed up at the Mexican agricultural program as this young plant pathologist talking about how he'd rather work with the, you know, larger landowners growing wheat than the small farmers growing corn, he was kind of marginalized. And in fact, he actually threatened to quit because he was so pissed off about having to work with small farmers who Imagine he thought- Imagine if that would, had happened. Yeah, would your history know, would right? have looked different? Yeah, no, it's interesting <laughs> to think Norman about it. Norman Borlaug yeah. would have quit. <laughs> and, became, but instead, and back to Iowa and work there. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you yeah. would, could have stopped the force. I mean, there was a, I mean, we, we can idolize about that. And, and at the same time, but it's interesting, yeah, so those crucial moments shape history. Yeah, and what happened was the Cold War. Um, I mean, there, you know, there's some complexity to it and some other factors. Certainly, there were some important elements in politics in Mexico as well. Um, 
as the sort of folks who were originally involved in the land reform, um, you know, moved out of power and newer folks came into power who were more interested in, you know, closer ties with the U.S. economy, for example. But but the biggest force of change was the Cold War. And so this was a huge influence on the way the Rockefeller leadership thought about all their programs and all their investments. And so this Mexican agricultural program that had originally been directed to try to accomplish something within the context of Mexico itself and specifically support those local efforts, understanding that that might then have lessons for parts of the U.S. that we're also trying to recover from not dissimilar dynamics, honestly, of, you know, really um, stratified social class and and wealth dynamics. Um, But originally, the Mexican agricultural program, it was trying to solve a local problem. But in the context of the Cold War, all of a sudden, these sort of influential public intellectuals were talking to the leadership of the Rockefeller Foundation, saying, if we as the United States and the free world want to win the Cold War against the communists, we need to pay close attention to the quote unquote, third world, that is the countries that haven't yet aligned themselves with the, the, the free world <laughs> or the communists. And these are countries that struggle with poverty. And these are countries that struggle with food insecurity. And so there was this belief um, in the United States and much of Europe that the need was for food aid programs and also exportable technologies to ensure that these countries in the quote unquote third world didn't become so food insecure that their hunger left them vulnerable to communism. That was a really influential political theory in the 1950s. And because this political theory was so influential, all of a sudden these decisions... Exactly. Rockefeller was like, oh, we need to turn our program into, we need to create a model for how small farmers all over the world are all of a sudden going to produce these high yields so that we can win the Cold War. So forget about what we're trying to do locally in Mexico. That's not as important now. One of the most biodiverse regions, growing techniques that go back centuries and and you see the effects, it just completely wiped out the smaller farmers. They couldn't afford it as soon as they were under any kind of depth bandwagon, high yield. I mean, you, you cannot get off anymore. I mean, we now know how difficult that is. You you get addicted literally or get wiped out. And and we've seen that happen time and time again. But it's very interesting that, yeah, an outside force, in this case, uh, global politics, and, and we might live in a time where that happens again, is mm. shaping a very well-intended program, but of course, run by intellectuals very far away. And and then it just morphs into a completely opposite beast, basically, which is, yeah, fascinating to look at, but also quite scary. Yeah. And something that was, you know, at the beginning, much more contextual and nuanced and informed by people within Rockefeller who'd actually spent significant time in Mexico and were working on you know more of a collaborative basis it it got replaced by something that was not contextual that was this sort of abstract idea that turned out to have a lot of holes in it <laughs> but that um you know the the whole sort of um public intellectual class and funder class at that time in the 50s just got caught up in this model of the world that was much more abstract and that was you know, proposing this sort of global principle rather than these sort of nuanced contextual understandings of how to support agriculture in particular places. Do we run that same risk now as we are intellectual, like 
intellectualizing the region act, the farmer should do this, the farmer should do that from a comfortable office, far away, let's say rural urban divide. And and of course the the Rockefellers actually announced a huge program on food a food program in the US, I think 105 million or something. And and uh and, and a lot of other things. Like is that again we would like the agriculture space to do something or the farmers to do something and, and but we mostly talk from a distance without understanding the local context. Do you do you see that as we are observing, of course, it's easy. We're talking with our headphones on, observing the space. But w- w- what what do you see there? Yeah, I think there's a couple of reverberations forward to our time. Um, one, I think for me, is the, the conversation about creating carbon markets, specifically in agriculture, which I think is envisioned as this kind of elegant and efficient global solution to creating an incentive within agriculture for farmers to use practices that sequester carbon. And I think this, you know, sort of like some of the ideas that started to get sway within Rockefeller almost 75 years ago now, um, is not um, as, as local and nuanced and contextual as I think regeneration requires of us. I think the project of regeneration is actually very complex and and very place-based and and also has a sort of social history. Um, And so I think it's really important not to just imagine that the financial sector can solve this problem simply by generating a market for soil carbon credits. And just some kind of simple examples of where I I see potential problems here. it's difficult to generate the sort of measurement approaches or metrics at the molecular level. Um, the science around measuring the movement of carbon through soil is still emerging. It's really interesting. I think it's really important that we invest in it and learn more about how this works. And I think it's pretty dangerous <laughs> to pin all of our hopes for regeneration on trying to measure something that we're still learning how to see at the molecular level. Whereas I think we have much more developed approaches for seeing functioning whole healthy ecosystems when we look at plants and animals um, and sort of, you know, ecological restoration. Um, So I think we shouldn't give up on some of these indicators that seem older and sort of less sexy. (laughs) Um, But I think also a deeper issue with some of these molecular metrics is that the equipment used is expensive. And in some cases, the um, sort of systems for tabulating and reporting can be expensive or require staff or things like that. And so it can become a mechanism not unlike the Green Revolution, for shutting out uh, the very smallholder farmers who are essential to uh, a project of regeneration if we understand it holistically. So I I think we should be careful around soil carbon credits. And then I think the other lesson from this, you know, Green Revolution story that's really relevant today is just the importance of being attentive to power. And not imagining that just coming up with a really efficient technical approach is is naturally going to accomplish regeneration if we don't think about how um, our intervention is shifting power and also how power dynamics are a part of the problem that we have in agriculture and that our solutions around regeneration also need to address power imbalances. One thing that comes up immediately, obviously, on power imbalances is access to land. You've written about that a lot in the book, in, in through almost all the chapters, I think, 
and and let's unpack that. I mean, that's way more for not, not just for one podcast, but the, the the land ownership and access to land. How much of that um, is is really holding us back, and and why are we not talking about it more? It seems like that elephant in the room that or the bison or whatever, let's, let's use a regenerative uh, or, or the, the, the whale or, um, but that, that really doesn't get talked about a lot. And there's an enormous wealth transfer happening now where farmers are retiring, etc. But if you look at just simply diversity in, in land ownership in, in the U S I think that's the place with the best data and, and the worst data at the same time, like the best accurate data. And it's really shocking to, to look at that. You, you sum it up in the book as well. Like the diversity is zero, basically, or very, it's a rounding error. And like, why is that so, so much easier to talk about no-till or plowing and, and, and agroforestry than it is to talk about who owns and why does somebody actually own a piece of land? And, and like, what, have you any idea about why is it so difficult to talk about that? Yes. Um, so, you know, white people, myself included, <laughs> in Me general, too, yeah. are, fairly uncomfortable talking about race and facing up to, um, you know, in this country, the history of slavery and the legacy uh, that that has left and the continued violence and discrimination against Black people. And I think also very uncomfortable to talk about genocide of Indigenous people, theft of Indigenous land, and being being a settler colonist. That's an incredibly uncomfortable conversation. And I think a, a lot of uh, white people in the United States haven't really known what to do about it. Um, I think have felt a lot of shame, um, are uncomfortable talking about it, and have no idea what to do to begin addressing these challenges. And so it's it's kind of easier to just ignore them and, and not talk about them because they seem, I think, to a lot of white people, intractable. Um, that said, I, I do think that the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement for Black Lives, and the way in which that really reached the public consciousness in 2020 in the wake of George Floyd's murder, I think has has started to move the needle on conversations about race in the United States and I think around the world. And I'm seeing a lot more people in regenerative agriculture and in the food and agriculture sector in general talking about it and acknowledging the history of slavery as a key piece of the history of agriculture in the U.S. Do you think enough people know know about it? I mean, I read the, the book, obviously, from as an outsider um or as like the one that sent the colonists there um we're never an outsider but like enough people know the details are just horrifying the details are like the the amount of land or the way in which it's been institutionalized structuralized that it's really really horrifying for somebody that, that sort of knew but didn't really know like do you know enough people do you think enough people I mean, it's easy to look away, but it's also easy to look away if you don't know. You know it yes. happened, and no, but farming and land has been a very, very central point of the the discrimination and the race movement. Like it's been very, very important to take first on the indigenous side, and then also there were a lot of lot of farmers of color, and now there are not so many. Like there's a, there's a very it's a, it's been very a focal point on on the rights on holding land, etc. I've been. Um, and all the programs have been designed not to help them, basically. Like, do, we, do we know enough about it? Or, or the, the answer is very simply, no, we don't know the dirty history there. 
<laughs> I think there's still a lot of work to do because um, I, I think your average um, person in the U.S. does not know this history. They might know that, um, you know, slavery happened. Um, although, I mean, a third of the people in this country are willing to deny a lot of things about reality. <laughs> um, but, you know, these are the statistics around agricultural land in the United States, and they're very stark. Um, about 40% of the U.S. population identifies as indigenous or people of color, and about 60% of the agricultural workers in the United States are people of color, and yet only 2% of agricultural land in the United States is owned by people of color. So that's the contemporary reverberation of the experience of indigenous land being stolen and black people being stolen from their homelands and then forced to labor in this industrial food system in the U.S. And then, you know, as you said, even up against so many obstacles, black people actually did purchase a lot of agricultural land by the early 20th century, but then were dispossessed of 98% of that through violence, lynching, uh, people being run out of town who were landowners by violent white mobs. And then also this really insidious financial racism, because um, in the wake of the Depression, the U.S. Department of Agriculture created loan programs in order to kind of get the agricultural sector back on its feet. And these loans were essential for many, many farmers um, of all backgrounds to sustain their farming operations through a few periods of recession and drought and things that were very hard on the sector. And those loan program programs were so deeply discriminatory that actually the, the largest class action lawsuit in U.S. history eventually um, you know, was decided in favor of black farmers who were denied loans, but not before, um, you know, essentially the vast majority of the black farming population lost their land. So 2% of agricultural land in the U.S. owned by people of color, and it's not an accident. It's the result of, of hundreds of years of you know, colonization and then this sort of colonial dynamic that's never really been taken out of the agricultural economy and the way it functions and the way it's structured. And you said something seems to be changing, or at least... There's a different, I would say, different smell in the air or something is starting to to shift since Black Lives Matters and, and maybe also since you've been starting to follow the, the sector 12 years ago. I don't think land ownership was any real discussion, let's say, beyond a few very niche, niche circles. Now it seems to be slowly, I mean, soil health is a discussion that's already a surprise, um, but have you seen shifts like let's say four and a half years ago when we last talked we, we didn't talk about this topic have you seen shifts um happening and actual and that's most important actual land being shifted because we can talk about it a lot but if no land changes hands um nothing really happens so have you seen things change there or has it been a lot of talk until now I think, um, you know, the regeneration movement taking on board this issue of racial justice and land justice, I, I think that's kind of in its infancy. Um, I think there's a lot more discussion. I think, you know, at um, 
you know, regenerative agriculture events, uh, virtual or in person, you hear a lot more conversation about the need for land justice, racial justice, um, reckoning with structural racism. You see a lot more speakers of color, leaders of color being centered um, in, you know, publications um, and journalism around regenerative agriculture. And at these events, I think there's more of an acknowledgement that you know, regenerative agriculture is rooted in the ancestral traditions of communities of color. Um, and and yet, I don't have a bunch of stories of land transfer in agriculture to share with you, unfortunately. Um, you know, there's, there's movement on the deeper land back movement in the United States. It's not all agricultural land, but a lot of it is connected to food systems. Um, there's an indigenous woman now um, who's been appointed um, in the federal government as the head of the Department of the Interior and also an indigenous person heading up the national parks. And we've recently had some high profile transfers of public lands back to native peoples. And in many cases, those are fisheries or lands that are grazed by animals that are perhaps hunted or, um, you know, something I wrote about quite a bit in the book is the buffalo restoration effort. And that's happening um, in the in the prairie, um, led by indigenous people in the United States. But in terms of um, you know agricultural land more broadly, I think um, there aren't a lot of stories about land transfer yet because I think it's going to require pretty ambitious public policy. Um, and you mentioned you know that we have this whole generation of farmers retiring. What I would love to see is a public program that buys those farmers out. Um, and then redistributes that land, um, you know, cognizant of uh, the inequity that we have now and, and what needs to be done to fix it. And how is it for you, obviously a white woman, I mean, you cannot see it on video, but the, to write this book, was it uncomfortable? Was it weird? I'm just asking, like, you, you visit these bison farms and uh, just quote unquote, it's not really your tribe. Like, how, how was that to to do that and dig there? You wrote a bit about it in the book. Um, and, and you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, I, I'm not sure if I'm the one that should, had to tell the story. You did. Like, how was that process for you as 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 an outsider, basically, to to dive into that and, and write a book like that? And how has been the response as well? Like, two questions. Let's start with the first one. Yeah, I struggled for years with whether I should write anything like this, um, you know, sort of increasingly seeing that regenerative agriculture has this really deep history in indigenous communities and communities of color, seeing Yeah, let's that just be clear, most all or, or all or most of the practices have been around forever and, and were just <laughs> rediscovered by a white dude somewhere, put in a book and or, or a podcast or a series or a course or something and, and suddenly... <laughs> There's a great term for that, which I obviously forget, but um, it, it's I can I can imagine how annoying it is for indigenous tribes to see. Okay, welcome to the show. You're a few centuries late. And we've been doing this forever, and now you put a term on it, and it's like anyway. So it's been it's been around all of it or ninety nine point nine percent of it. So so let's not kid ourselves. We're standing on the shoulders of giants without knowing it or without wanting to say it. So that getting that out of the way, how has that been for you? Sorry, you struggled for years, you said. Yeah, I did because, you know, I'm a narrative writer. Um, and so I was constantly wanting to highlight some of these stories of incredible 
regenerative farmers, ranchers from indigenous communities and communities of color, seeing that oftentimes these individuals and these communities were underrepresented in the media around regenerative agriculture. Um, and, And initially, my approach was, that's not the piece, you know, it's not for me to write, but I can, you know, how can I support people from those communities in telling their own stories, um, which which I think is the right sort of first step <laughs> for white people in this space is not to think, how can I do this? Um, but to think, oh, you know, people are probably already doing this um, in their own communities. What can I do to support? Um, and I kind of thought that would be the way in which I thought about being an ally for the rest of my career as a writer and researcher. Um But increasingly, I saw that, you know, there was a gap specifically um, kind of among uh, white folks in the research community um, that that maybe there was a role for me to just be honest about how I came to seeing this as so important that, you know, I my background is that, you know, my grandmother, white, lost our family farm in the Dust Bowl and. I started this journey just very concerned about how, you know, not taking care of soil health, um, you know, ultimately destroys communities. And, you know, from that standpoint, as a white person, you know, completely embedded in in this, you know, settler colonial history, I see the only hope for my community being in taking leadership from these indigenous communities and communities of color that have this really deep relationship with with regeneration that's not just these kind of isolated individual practices, but is embedded in this whole larger philosophy and reciprocal relationship with land. Um, so I eventually, you know, sort of came to the decision that I I just wanted to share from my standpoint only, not claiming to be, you know, the expert or that this is the definitive story about regenerative agriculture, but just to say, you know, hey, I'm Liz, you know, I care deeply about regenerative agriculture from a personal place as well as a professional place. And, you know, where I've come to after 12 years in this field is that we really need to take leadership from indigenous communities and communities of color. And this is where, you know, these techniques originated from. And, you know, within these communities, it's not just techniques. It it is this deeper relationship with land. Um, And then it was like, okay, how can I possibly do this in a way that, you know, doesn't produce more harm than good? And so, you know, from the beginning, I was really committed to not profiting at all from writing this book. Um, we uh, convened an advisory council of the major folks who are featured in it and made a decision about where to allocate any of the proceeds. Um, so those are going to a, a BIPOC farmers land access convergence um, and then um, a really cool internship um, with uh, the person featured in the book who works on bison restoration um, for a student from a tribal college. And then, you know, I have a page on my website to redirect speaking invitations. Um, I think really carefully about stuff like what we're doing now, podcasts. (laughs) Um, And, you know, in any case where, you know, folks are available and interested, I redirect those as well um, to folks in the book or people connected to them. Um, you know, just to make sure that I, I'm not getting in the way of, of someone else building their platform. But but I'm, you know, trying to in sort of a humble way and as gracefully as possible to, to play this ally role. Because um, I do think ultimately, you know, everybody has to be part of this transition to 
a regenerative agriculture that's also equitable. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think as white people, we shouldn't center ourselves and imagine that we have to continue to be the leaders, um, you know, because obviously- It's kind of the issue, people, huh? I think we center ourselves a bit too much. Yeah, yeah. In general, yeah. In I nature, mean, 10 years ago. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's, it's, and it's okay, sorry, so we don't have to center ourselves. It's, it's a much broader movement. You write about some fascinating stories in the book of not the usual suspects, not the usual ones that have been doing things that are way beyond, yeah, let's say soil health, and, and which is which been very, very interesting. And then the book came out in March. Um, we're now talking June, uh, depending when you listen to this, obviously, 2022, by the way. Um, how has been the, the response? Yeah, I never know. People can listen to this like years from now. So I always have to mention, what, what has been the, the response from, uh, let's say, the traditional regen movement, the non-traditional movement, the, the folks you featured in the, the, the book or not, and uh, what, what has been the, uh, how has this book landed, let's say, in, uh, in, in the space? Yeah. Um, you know, I was actually kind of surprised that it's been, it's been really positive. Um, you know, maybe just to start with, um, you know, the quote unquote traditional regen movement. Um, I, I kind of thought I would at some point get a really angry email from somebody, you know, along the lines of, um, you know, I don't think racial justice has anything to do with this. <laughs> you know, um, I haven't gotten that email. Um, maybe, maybe people have said that in each other, you know, in each other's private conversations. Nobody said that to my face. Nobody sent me that email. It, it probably is because I'm white. I imagine if I were a person of color saying this, I would get some ugly emails. I've, I've heard from colleagues that they have. I also think you know, Black Lives Matter did a lot of work. Um, I started this book um, just a few months before George Floyd's murder, you know, not knowing that there would be a couple years of really public conversation about race happening in advance of this book coming out. And I think, you know, those activists really kind of paved the way for this conversation to land and people not to be as shocked by it as they might have five years ago. Um, so I actually got a lot of emails that surprised me in the other direction <laughs> of folks that I'm connected to who probably identify as rural conservatives. That's my sense. Um, I've worked with a lot of rural conservatives in the course of my work. You know, I used to be a country singer. I'm from Montana, <laughs> uh, who wrote me things that were... Um, very thoughtful and very empathetic and ultimately very supportive. And I would have never, ever ventured to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with some of these people about race. I would have wrongly assumed that, that they weren't open to it. And that's the beautiful thing about a book is you can put an idea out there and in a way you can sort of have an indirect conversation with people and, and they can sort of find it and they can sit with it and they can engage you in conversation if they want to. And, and by and large, I think I've been pleasantly surprised that I think there are people out there who are ready to talk about race and land justice who maybe you wouldn't think are ready. Um, so I'm going to have a policy going forward <laughs> of never um, jumping to the assumption that people aren't ready for these conversations. And, and researching this book and spending so much time on the ground, literally, which um, mm -hmm. reading the stories must have been amazing um, and painful at the same time. What, what has been the biggest surprise for you? Like where um, of those stories or maybe even a story that didn't make it to the book, but like something that 
um, really, really surprised you. Could be on anything. Could be on, on obviously the, the could be on the on the ground, the plants, the social side. What what would have been the biggest surprise while writing this book um, that that got to you? Yeah, I mean, I think so. When I started researching the book, and when I got to the point where I was actually looking for specific people that were going to be kind of like the quote unquote main characters <laughs> of the sections, I knew I was looking to feature people of color and communities of color, because those communities had these long-standing pre-colonial traditions of regenerative agriculture. So things like, you know, bison grazing as the as the OG regenerative grazing, <laughs> uh, you know, agroforestry within the Black diaspora, polyculture, all these mixtures of crops in Mesoamerica, deep, deep, deep history, you know, think about three sisters, and nutrient cycling practices in Asia, which actually, you know, if you sort of trace back where did the organic movement get its ideas? <laughs> like, oh, Sir Albert Howard and an agricultural testament. Went to India soil and, and came he back. He went to yeah. India. Yeah. Franklin Hiram King, farmers of 40 centuries. He went to China, Japan, and Korea. So I was thinking about these pre-colonial regenerative traditions. And what I think really surprised me and that I learned in the course of researching the book, and I have to give a lot of credit to Monica White's book, Freedom Farmers, for really directing my attention in this way, is not only was regenerative agriculture important prior to colonization, but it's been important within all of these communities as a means of resistance to colonization. So if you think about colonization as being a kind of mode of extraction and agriculture, extractive agriculture being a part of that colonial logic, Communities of color and indigenous communities have been continually reasserting these regenerative practices to resist that extraction, which they understand as harmful to their own bodies, their own communities, their own land. And so those stories were really incredible and surprising to me of, you know, black agroforestry in the face of enslavement and in the face of Jim Crow Um this movement for buffalo restoration in the face of boarding schools and reservations, all these forms of confinement that were affecting both people and animals, buffalo restoration being this kind of move to, to reclaim this free and mobile relationship with land, which is ecologically necessary in an arid prairie, but of course is also, you know, part and parcel of, of indigenous territorial sovereignty. So that was really exciting for me in the book when I was like, ah, you know, this is about regeneration and it's also about liberation. And those two projects have actually been really closely intertwined within communities of color for the past few hundred years. And that might be an interesting, more understatement, but interesting hook for the current, let's say, agriculture system where farmers, regardless of color, are stuck. And are, mm. are definitely not, although they, they inherited uh, the land or, uh, I mean, it, the, leaving the land question aside for a second, but are stuck in a system where they're completely powerless, um, and need a bit of liberation and need, uh, uh, a lot of regeneration as well. And, and it is a discussion on power. Like, are you dependent on outside forces or do you have your own seeds? Are you dependent on outside fertility or do you have your own fertility? Are you dependent on outside labor or do you have year round um, community on your farm or nearby that can, can the hands you need to work and the hands you want to work on your farm, et cetera, et cetera. It is a discussion, um, on, um, on power and, and liberation there. So that, that's a very interesting, like the, 
we most of the agriculture system is stuck because of that and, and not because they want to, obviously. Um, and what would you like investors and the finance sector? We are all far away in our shiny office. No, I don't have that, but a shiny office and, and, and really not very in touch with agriculture, at least not, let's say, the real version of agriculture, what's really happening on the land. What would you like to, to let's imagine we're doing this in a, in a theater um, on stage and the room is full of, of let's say, enlightened, smart investors and people working in finance. What would you like them to take away? to do differently tomorrow or even tonight when they walk out of that theater and they talk to their neighbor and, and they're like, what, what would you like them to, the main message to take away from your research and, and, and also the book? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll start with, I think the primary concern that I hear when I talk to people in the impact investing community who are thinking about regenerative agriculture, I don't know where this fits on your sort of top 10 of, you know, questions from folks who are skeptical, but it's it's really high on mine. And people say, okay, you, you told me about some techniques that you can verify will put carbon into the soil, but you haven't told me whether it's going to stay there. How can you prove to me Permanent. that it's going to, yeah, for a period of time relevant to the climate cycle, which is to say a long time. <laughs> and they look at, you know, the deed on a piece of farmland and they see how many times it's changed hands in the last hundred years. And they say, uh, is this money just going to evaporate? Because maybe we did something good today, but somebody else is on the land in 10 years and that all is gone because you know here comes the plow <laughs> and or the two carbon years destruction with... machine yeah <laughs> yeah exactly that's a great question i'm glad that investors are asking that question i think that's a very savvy question and so i would say if, if you want to make an impactful and effective investment that also has a long-term impact I would say dig deeper and look at how to invest in projects that are rooted in indigenous communities and communities of color that have really, really deep ties to land and for whom regenerative agriculture fits within a larger social and cultural framework rather than just as a financial activity or something where people are, are looking to um you know, sort of earn a profit or a livelihood within this generation. Um, and I think, you know, obviously the other reason to do this is equity, is is looking at that, you know, U.S. statistic that 2% of the land is owned, agricultural land is owned by communities of color and indigenous communities. But it's not just about equity. It is really about impact and effectiveness. And why wouldn't you invest in the communities that have the longest history of having done these things successfully. I mean, you know, talk about proof of concept, like <laughs> Buffalo Prairies did a really good job of storing carbon. Um, and, Until you know, so if I, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so that's what I would say to the community of investors and funders is, is do have that lens of, of looking at communities of color and indigenous communities. And I'll be the first to acknowledge that in many cases that requires extra homework. Um, you know, I mean, if folks have already been under-resourced, they, they might not have the staff to have a splashy web page, <laughs> or they might not um, have sort of configured their project to interface with the impact investing community as readily as a lot of projects that have been configured from the beginning to generate that kind of investment. But that's exactly what can make the investment 
meaningful is that you actually are moving capital somewhere where it's not already flowing based on prior dynamics. You are actually shifting something and you are actually making a change that's that's going to last beyond just, you know, those 10 years of the carbon in the soil. So additionality, the box is, has been ticked there. And so what would you do if you're in charge of, let's say, a billion or even 10 billion? I have the feeling with inflation, I need to add zeros here. Um, as an investment fund, which has the, the longest duration you want, like you, it, it's not confined to 10 years or eight years or 20 years. It's, let's say, an evergreen structure. Where would you, not where literally, but how would you put it to work and what would you prioritize um, if you would be in charge of, of a significant significant uh, research portfolio, basically, or a significant portfolio full of resources. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're actually in that situation, I have to say, I feel for you. Like, that's a huge responsibility. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, the most important thing is is you don't have to figure this out all yourself. Um, there, there are some incredible groups and coalitions. I mean, the fact that we're on a podcast here is a great example. Um, but, but sort of specifically in this space of if you're looking to invest in indigenous communities and communities of color that have these deep histories of regenerative agriculture, um, you know, I would look to groups like the Heal Food Alliance, um, Soul Fire Farm, the Black Farmer Fund, um, which I've written about a little bit in the book, um, for some guidance, you know, and some help kind of navigating this space, because I think it is really tricky, especially if um, if you're white or if your group is white led, um, you know, sort of adjudicating claims from different projects led by different people of color, different communities of color it can get really uncomfortable really quickly <laughs> as you wonder, like, how do I, um, you know, sort of um, direct traffic or referee in this situation. It, it, I, I know for myself, that often feels really inappropriate, even making decisions about who to feature in a narrative piece. And so <clears throat> you can lean on on groups like Soul Fire Farm, which has a whole network, or um, the Black Farmer Fund, Northeast Farmers of Color. Um, and, and a lot of these groups are connected to each other around the world as well. So if you're looking to invest in Europe or the UK or somewhere else, um, you know, starting with any of these folks is, is going to connect you to sort of help you make these decisions and figure out where where your niche is, where you can make the most impact. Yeah, because let's be clear, this is not a, a US problem or a North American problem only. This is colonization has happened everywhere, almost everywhere has left deep, deep traces. And, and of course, land ownership is an issue everywhere. Access is an issue everywhere. Um, and let's say diversity on the land ownership side is an issue everywhere. And so, uh, I mean, the nuances are slightly different in some places, but that, that sh we shouldn't just point at it, oh, that's, that's the US, so here we're fine, or here, wherever here is. This is something that, that is definitely an, an, an issue around the world, or a huge issue and a huge lever as well for change, unless we start talking about the, the colonization of our food and agriculture and land system and, and fisheries. And we, we probably won't get very far. And so what would you, then we, unfortunately we take your fund away, but you have a magic wand and, and listeners <laughs> of the podcast know this is usually uh, one of the final questions, but you have a magic wand and you can change one thing in the food and egg space. And I'm realizing I might've asked it last time as well, but I didn't listen. Maybe in, in episode 18, we didn't have this question yet. And if we, we have a ping me uh, because I didn't listen to it uh, before, but if you could change one thing, because for sure it just changed over, over the last four and a half years that you've been 
um, extra active in the space, what would you change if you could only change one thing in the space? This is greedy. I, I'm going to give you two answers from two Everybody of my... does that always. They're like, yeah, I have one thing, but I'm going to do two <laughs> things. And they're like, yeah, that's not the point. Anyway, okay, you get two. From, from two of my different personalities. So, you know, one side of me, I'm a poet. I'm a former musician. I write narrative books. Another side of me, you know, I worked uh, for a U.S. senator, and I'm a policy wonk, and I think in really precise ways about um, changing laws. So, so that that side of me, the wonk, the one thing I would change is I would change what happens to people's land when they retire as farmers, and there would be a federal program that offers to buy out those farmers so that they have a dignified retirement. And there is a pool of land that through public policy, um, you know, invested in the public interest, um, can make that land available to uh, new entry farmers um, who may be indigenous, who may be farmers of color. Um, those folks would have certainly, um, you know, uh, priority access to make sure that they can get access to that land who are interested in growing healthy food for their communities in a way that's consistent with ecological restoration. So that's what I would do on a policy basis. The poet in me says that, you know, any policy change is ultimately based on a change in our society's relationship to land. And so if I could wave a magic wand and change anything in agriculture, um, literally, you know, all those of us on this earth would see land as a relative, as a living, breathing relative. I think there's no better way to to end this this conversation. I want to thank you so much, Liz, to come back on the show for writing this book, for contributing to a lot of interesting articles, and I'm going to link them below, and for the work you do. And uh, thank you for coming on here to to share and for taking the time. Thank you so much for an incredibly insightful conversation. It's it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening all the way till the end. For the show notes and links discussed, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash post. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you like this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.